I want to begin this episode by just bringing to light two recent cases. First, I want to talk about Breonna Taylor, who was a beautiful black woman and healthcare worker during a pandemic, and she was shot while sleeping in her own home by Louisville police. After the recent trial in which no officer was charged with her murder, but instead one officer was charged for the bullets he shot, which entered a neighboring apartment, the Louisville Black Lives Matter chapter has been asking people to share their demands, and so I'm going to read their demands. The first is immediately fire and revoke the pensions of the officers that murdered Breonna Taylor. The second is divest from Louisville Metro Police Department and invest in community building. The third is the immediate resignation or impeachment of Mayor Greg Fisher. The fourth is uh, the Metro Council ends the use of force by Louisville Metro Police Department. The fifth is a local civilian community police accountability council that is independent of the mayor's office and Louisville Metro Police Department and has investigation and discipline power. And the last demand is the creation of policy to ensure transparent investigation processes. The second case I want to lift up right now is actually from my hometown of Troy, New York. So in 2016, Edson Thevenin, who was a loving father, brother, husband, and son, was murdered by Officer French of Troy Police Department at a traffic stop. And so the police chief at the time and District Attorney Joe Abeloff announced that the killing was justified before any investigation could be conducted. And then four days after the killing, the DA had Officer French testify in front of a grand jury and was given immunity so that he couldn't be charged with the murder. And so, you know, over the course of the last few years, there's been an investigation from the attorney general's office, which revealed that Officer French lied and that officials covered up the truth. And then in 2019, there was a leak that revealed that this cover up did happen. Um, but more recently, the attorney general went back at the district attorney um, and charged him with felony perjury and two counts of official misconduct. And about three weeks ago, the trial actually ended um, and it was uh, just a trial in front of a judge. And so the judge found District Attorney Joe Abeloff innocent. And so with that, all I really have to say is that the District Attorney Joe Abeloff, Mayor Patrick Madden, Troy PD and Troy City Council conspired to cover this up and that they all have blood on their hands. So if you're interested in learning about what's going on in either of these two cities, I'm going to put some links in the show notes so y'all could figure out how you want to support. Hey! What up, Shot? What's good, bro? What's poppin', Swan? You too. Demi, a ver, que lo que? What's up, man? What it do, baby? What's up, Guan, my dudes? Hey, y'all. Hey, bye. You good? What's up, Joe? What's your own? 
Yeah. Get okay. It's good, guys. Get up by me, gente. Talk to me nice. Hey, boo. Welcome to the Black Language Podcast, where we talk about our people and our language and what talking black is anything said by a black person. I'm your host, Anansa, and I just want to remind y'all that if y'all mess with the kid, please support the show in any way that you can. Rate, subscribe, review, all that. So I actually want to begin with a quick shout out to the UC Santa Barbara Department of Linguistics and their HBCU Talking College project. Um, because back in August, I attended the second annual Advancing African American Linguistics Symposium, and it was mad fly. Like, it was two days, but I didn't even care that I was on Zoom um, because, you know, it was just a dope space. The comment section was lit. Like, you know, the support was clearly there, and it was just dope to be around, you know, other Black linguists and, you know, and learn from them. So my goal for this episode is to talk a little bit about what Black students experience in school um, from my own experiences, from what I've seen, what I've read, um, then talk about some historical moments involving Black language in schools, and then end talking about approaches that get taken to working with our kids, you know, and us when we were young. Um, and then also talk about, you know, where we're going, like what Black linguists are plotting now um, to make sure that schools are healthy places um, for our children. And so I hope to do this all without getting sidetracked and redundant and angry. Um, so I'm going to begin by setting the foundation for this episode with a photo that I came across on Facebook in 2017. And it's a photo that lists language regulations that a teacher set for their classroom. And so the headline to the page says, you will speak properly when you walk into the classroom, these words are banned. And so the whole list is a list of Ebonics. Like it was our words, our phrases, our pronunciations, our writing stylistics. A few of the things on the list was, on fleek or not, and by Felicia. I'm gonna try to see if I could upload like a link to the photo in the show notes just so you could look at it. And so some people may look at this list and think nothing of it and believe that students need to speak a certain way in school or in professional settings. And other people will look at this list and understand that when we tell students to speak a certain way in school or in the office and we tell them to speak properly and formally, we need to ask ourselves what is considered appropriate for school and what is considered proper and formal and why. The quick and correct answer is white supremacy. And so this actually doesn't just happen in the United States, but across the world, you'll find that the group with the most social, economic, political power probably also has the linguistic power. So this means that they will be the ones who set the tone for which language variation is seen as appropriate and is used to write business documents and health pamphlets and used to broadcast news and used in school and for government and more. And so many language variations of oppressed people end up being judged negatively and seen as deficient or lacking in some way. So right quick, I think I've used language variation before, but I don't know that I've really talked about like what a language variation is. And so a language variation refers to the regional, social, or contextual differences in the way a language can be used. And so this means that for any particular language, if you're from a certain region, belong to a certain class, you're from a certain ethnic group or age group, or you're in a certain context, you know, and so much more, 
There are different ways of pronouncing the sounds, different ways of adjusting grammar, differences in word choice, you know, and differences in the way that you do things with language, such as making jokes, being polite, greeting one another, and so on. And so using the term language variation is actually my preferred term. Um, I don't know. It, it just feels better. And so what gets me most about the image of the list of banned words from that classroom is that the teacher sees it fit to punish students because of their language in a place like a school where students are supposed to feel safe and loved and be celebrated. Like to me, it's honestly wild that the paper says that violations will be given after the first warning. And so it's these kinds of things that really got me interested in experiences Black kids have in schools. So quick story. After undergrad, I moved to Providence, Rhode Island, and I was able to get some classroom experience through City Year, which is an AmeriCorps education nonprofit program. And every time my friends or family, you know, asked me how things were going, I would end up going on a rant saying how the school district looked like a lawsuit waiting to happen. And I wasn't even being disrespectful. Like I was there from 2015 to 2017. And then in 2019, while I'm in grad school, the U.S. Department of Justice found that the school had 12 violations of the Equal Educational Opportunities Act with regard to um, supporting the English language learners. And so at the time, I didn't know nothing about the design of the English language learner programs when I'm um, participating in city year. I just knew that something was off though. Like you could see it. Um, so at the high school I worked at, about 72% of the students, they checked the box that said Hispanic or Latino, you know, in the demographic form. And then about 38% of the students were classified as English language learners by the school. And so that's mad students. Like that's more than one in four students who are learning English. And so the school was actually wild multilingual and it was so dope. Like I will never forget um, our homecoming and it was mad fly. Like we had reggaeton, Afro beats and bachata. Honestly, like the majority of the music wasn't even in English and the students did not seem to mind at all. And also at the school I worked at, we frequently received students who were new to the country and we just collectively failed them point blank. I would hear teachers tell students to speak English in the hallways and make ignorant comments about how language learning works. Um, you know, I did see some teaching methodologies and stuff that looked kind of sus. Um, y'all, actually, one of the violations that the Department of Justice found was that teachers were working with ELL students without the certification to even work with students who are learning English. So if you want to be a teacher who works with students who are English language learning, typically you have to go to school and get a certain certificate or, you know, complete a certain program that says you can work with this population of students. In the school, in, well, I don't know if it was my school, but the district that I was working at had teachers that did not have those certifications. And I know that a certification is not everything, right? So like there are some people with certifications who might use some improvement. And then there's people without certifications who are great. But still, I'm just like, like, where they do that at? Like, how do you do that? Another violation was that students were unnecessarily segregated in ELO classrooms. And I remember like working at the school and, you know, seeing that all the ELO students travel together. And, you know, I understand that if students share something in common, they're going to hang out. So if all these students speak Kamai or if they speak Spanish, they might all hang together. 
But it's another thing when literally their class schedules, they have all the same classes together. And so these kids were dead ass segregated from the rest of the school. Like that is wild. And so uh, just those experiences were actually a big motivation of mine to go get my master's. And I did enter the city year program thinking like, hey, I'm working in the school. This is a great time for me to see how issues of linguistics and education can come together. And, you know, I definitely got it. And so I went to grad school wanting to learn more about what contributes to positive language learning environments for students. Um, I wanted to learn about how teachers' implicit biases come out in their language and how we affirm or harm students with our language. And I wanted to think about how schools can better support students who are multilingual and celebrate that multilingualness without centering English and the United States. And when I talk about multilingual students, I'm absolutely talking about all Black students, which includes my Black Dominican students, my Liberian students, and my Black American students. So the legal issues in Providence was certainly not the first time that issues of language made it to the courts. I want to bring attention to two cases that attempted to get rid of obstacles for Black students. The first is the Ann Arbor case of 1979, where a lawsuit was filed on behalf of Black American students at Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School. So at this school, they found that Black students were disproportionately and wrongfully put in special education classes and speech pathology classes. And so they argue that the school didn't take into consideration the cultural and linguistic background of their students. Ultimately, the judge ruled in favor of the students, stating that the unconscious but evident attitude of the teachers towards the home language of the students, towards Ebonics, caused a barrier to learning. The second case I want to highlight was actually a resolution made by the Oakland School Board in Oakland, California in 1996, and it's referred to as the Oakland Ebonics Resolution. So as a result of Black students failing at a disproportionate rate, the resolution proposed acknowledging Ebonics as the home language for Black students and also acknowledging that Ebonics is an African language. And so the media really spun this into a mess. I feel like I remember this, even though I was only three at the time. Um, but I just feel like growing up, being a young kid and hearing people say the word Ebonics and like giggling after they said it, or just having like super negative reactions towards it. And so in thinking about these two cases, you know, and um, my personal experiences in schools and probably your personal experiences in schools, it's like what happens when you live in a society where the way you speak is seen as deficient, as an indication of your intelligence, prevents you from accessing services and resources such as education, health, and housing, and denies you basic human decency. So specifically for school, we have all types of data from people's personal experiences on up that shows that when black kids grow up and go to school, educators think that we have bad language habits, make frequent mistakes, that our language requires speech pathology classes, that it's an indication of of a low intelligence, and that we can't just do things right. And by that, they mean we can't do things white. And so what ends up happening then is... Our children and us, you know, when we were young, we grew up probably thinking that we had bad language habits, that we make frequent mistakes, that a language is an indication that we have low intelligence and that we just can't do things right when it comes to school. And so because educators will use the correctionist approach, which means that they'll 
quote unquote correct students by switching their language from Ebonics to white mainstream English. Um, and so in this approach, people think that reminding students to speak quote unquote properly and correcting them when they make a perceived mistake is beneficial, but it actually harms students. It's so, so harmful and we know it. Students internalize these experiences and develop feelings of shame and low confidence and the negative self-image and discomfort in school. And so the correctionist approach to teaching has become highly criticized because honestly, it just creates a hostile learn environment for our students. And it does this by classifying the student's language as wrong, as being just flat out deficient. And so when students view their language as deficient, they're going to look at themselves and begin to view themselves as the, as deficient. And this is something that I personally struggle with OD when I did city year in Providence. So I was working as a classroom support in the ELA classroom where I'm supposed to help students develop their reading and writing skills. And I would read students work all the time and see Ebonics right there on a page. And here I am with my little linguistics degree thinking I'm big and bad and not knowing what to say. I would typically start off validating our language and then switch up the convo and tell the student about all this language of school and academic language BS that they need to use. And I struggled with that so much because I knew I was wrong. Like I knew that I was not helping students at all and that I was contributing to white supremacy, but I didn't know why and I didn't know how to explain you know, what I was thinking, what I was feeling, um, and kind of explain in 60 seconds in the middle of a classroom when I'm circulating all the history that a student needs to know to feel comfortable making a decision about how they want to write and how they want to speak. And so it wasn't, it also wasn't my classroom to actually impose a curriculum, but one thing I'm super proud of is introducing my partner teacher to the book Bronx Masquerade by Nikki Grimes, one of my all-time favorite books. We ended up reading that book as a class, and it does indeed use Black language throughout. And the students knew the book was written in Ebonics because they would make observations about it. And I remember the exact moment when one of my students, I'm not going to say who, but we did dress up as twins on Twin Day. Uh, asked me why the book was written like that. And I said, you talk like that, don't you? And she said, yeah. And so I was like, well, there it is. So this leads me to talking about another approach that gets taken towards working with our students. Um, potentially, depending on how old you are, you could have had a classroom that was like this. And it's something that I touched on a little bit earlier, and that is the teaching of code switching. So code switching refers to switching between two languages or language variations. And in the past few years, I've seen my fair share of articles asking how schools should treat black language and if schools should teach code switching. So basically what would happen is students would learn that they speak black language and then they would be told that there's academic language and professional language which is basically the mainstream American English. And so teachers would use Ebonics to help students acquire mainstream English. And so people think that this is beneficial because, you know, here students are learning about our language and our history, allegedly. And, and so students should feel pride in themselves, right? And yet it doesn't work. Because what this is saying is that Black language is only appropriate for non-academic settings and unprofessional settings. And so essentially, it's only okay for informal settings. 
But it's like, how are you going to tell a black child who talks to their black grandparent, who talks to the black pastor, right? Who talks to these people, these black people who hold high rank in the community that their language is only for informal settings. And so it seems pretty clear to me that even with an attempt to center black language, it's still not given as proper's. And so now the message that black students receive is that you speak your own language, but it's not as good as ours. So let me teach you how to speak better. And this approach of teaching students to code switch just completely denies that there's levels to this. There's levels to Black English. Ebonics is not just one thing. It's different depending on who you are, where you're from, what you do, and who you do it with. And so we know our beloved Congresswoman Maxine Waters and Meg Thee Stallion both speak Black language. It sound different, but they do. And why? Because Black language is a full communication system that has everything we need to fulfill everything we need to do, have done, and will do. Ultimately, what I'm unsure of about code switching is I'm not sure how learning to code switch moves the U.S. to a less racist place. So Black people who code switch, like we still experience racism. So that tells me that the U.S. really just has a problem with us. And so anything that comes with us is going to be rejected under white supremacy. And how do we know this? Because white people use black language all the time for profit, for marketing, bro, the commercials I be seeing, the, the, the apparel, you know, all this stuff. And it seems to work fine for them. Again, language is not just about what is being said, but also who is saying it. So if you go get married and a person presiding over your marriage isn't licensed, then you ain't married because it's not just about someone reading the little marriage script. It's about who that person is. So that person being licensed now becomes very important. We can't separate who we are from what we say. You know, perhaps code switching should be given its own episode. Um, a friend of mine actually recently asked if I was going to do an episode about it. And I'm not going to front. Code switching is not really my favorite thing to talk about. I don't know why, probably because, you know, I'm struggling with it. Um, It's something that we do to assimilate into white America. Some people choose to do it. Others don't. Some people turn it on and off like that. And when we sit and reflect, we probably all have had um, or will have a complicated relationship with it. The thing is, what I will not stand for is people lying on code switching, saying how it will bring us opportunities in life. And I think it's very dangerous to perpetuate that. And it does not acknowledge that code switching is not actually about showing your verbal prowess, right? It's not showing like, oh, look, I can switch between multiple languages. You know, isn't this cool? What it's actually doing is making white people and non-black people feel safe around us. And I know that there are people who think that they were able to get an education or a job or a big opportunity because they code switch. And I'm not trying to take that away from you. And I'm not trying to deny that reality that code switching probably has allowed you to be in these spaces. But what I'm trying to say is that you will be just as qualified for your degree, for your job, for your big opportunity, no matter how you spoke. What I want to highlight about code switching is that the only reason we code switch is because of white supremacy. Well, specifically, the only reason we as black folk code switch into white mainstream English is because of white supremacy. Like there is nothing inherently better about white mainstream English. 
all languages, these systems of communication are absolutely a thousand percent, without a doubt, equal. Every language meets the needs of the people. And when it doesn't, the people will change it. That is my favorite thing about language. I think it's incredible. And so to teach students to use mainstream American English and equate it to opportunities and possibility in life, while at the same time regulating when they use Black language and equating it to informality and lower intelligence and deficiencies, it's actually harmful for our children and it's harmful for us. It's harmful because it's a lie. You know, it's one of the many lies that America has told us. America has told us you know, things that we can do to become financially stable. That one, nothing but a bunch of lies. America has told us, and they keep telling us things we need to do to not die at the hands of the police. Again, that was nothing but a bunch of lies. And America been trying to tell us that mainstream English is the wave. And this is another lie. It's one of the many lies that white people have to tell in order to uphold white supremacy. They tell us to code switch so we can have jobs, so we can be taken seriously, so we can have a seat at the table. And that is a huge burden for us to bear. Essentially, we're blamed for their lack of humanity. Like my honest to God feelings about code switching is that because white people can't help but be racist, we have to talk a certain way just so they can breathe when they're in the same room as us. To me, that's what code switching is. And what's wild about that is it still don't work. So what do we do when regulating and policing our children's speech and our speech and teaching them the code switch isn't the answer? Something that I think is a way right now is using critical education to work with students. What that means is being real with students about why Ebonics is treated the way it is and why mainstream English is treated the way it is and giving students the full picture so that way they can interrogate injustice and challenge these norms and make decisions for themselves. And what's wild about this again is when we focus on the students who are most marginalized, when we focus on black students, other students benefit. And I'll tell y'all right now, it's some really dope black linguists doing dope work specifically in education. Recently, I copped the book, Linguistic Justice, Black Language, Literacy, Identity, and Pedagogy, written by April Baker Bell, who with a team of Black linguists is also, or sorry, Black scholars is also working on a Black Linguistic Justice syllabus and also started Black Linguistic Justice Week, which began this year on August 4th. And so I started this episode by reading off some demands. And so I'm going to finish by reading some demands. I'm going to read the demands from Black Linguistic Justice Week because in my opinion, these demands really highlight the direction that I believe we need to move in to create safe places um, to grow healthy Black children. So there's actually five demands in total, and each demand has like little mini demands under it. So I'm going to read the main five and then a few of the little mini demands. So the first one is, we demand that teachers stop using academic language and standard English as the accepted communicative norm, which reflects white mainstream English. One of the little mini demands says, we demand that teachers and researchers acknowledge that socially constructed terms such as academic language and standard English are false and entrenched in notions of white supremacy and whiteness that contribute to anti-Black linguistic racism. The second demand is we demand that teachers stop teaching black students to code switch. 
Instead, we must teach Black students about anti-Black linguistic racism and white linguistic supremacy. And with that, we demand that teachers stop policing Black students' language practices and penalizing them for using it in the classroom. Y'all, like number two, actually, that demand means a lot to me because by giving students a critical education, teaching them about anti-Black linguistic racism and white supremacy, what it does is it puts some, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Agency onto the student and the student can choose what they want to do. The student can choose to co-switch if they want. The student can choose to write in the way that they want. Right now, what's happening is students are kind of forcefully being told to code switch without giving an actual explanation of why it's even happening. The third demand says that we demand that political discussions and praxis center Black language as teacher-researcher activism for classrooms and communities. And one of the low demands says that researchers, scholars, educators, and all everyday Black folks center Black language on its unique philosophies and survivances of Black life rather than on a set of linguistic departures from a fictional white norm. The fourth demand says we demand Black linguistic consciousness. And one of the many demands says uh, we demand that teachers and researchers decolonize their minds and or language of white supremacy and anti-Black linguistic racism and study the origin theories and social linguistic principles that exist about Black language. And lastly, number five says we demand that Black dispositions are centered in the research and teaching of Black language. And with that, we demand that teachers assign readings that are written by foundational and contemporary Black language scholars. So what I really want to communicate with this episode is that we need to create spaces for our children to explore their linguistic and cultural identity. I mean, I absolutely feel that we need to do the same thing for ourselves, but I'm also very committed to helping nurture healthy Black children. And so when we don't acknowledge the home language of our students, we are doing them a disservice. On many admissions applications and scholarship applications, um, I like to say that I grew up in a family where New Yorkian Spanish, Coastal Carolina Gullah, and Great Migration Diction were thrown around like baseballs. As a child, I should have known that my ancestors created a language and that I am continuing their legacy. And so in reflecting on this discussion, I want to end with a quote from Dr. Geneva Smitherman, who is a dope linguist who's published some influential work and has definitely inspired me because I didn't use this quote like seven different times because it's that good. She says, we have kids in the inner cities who are verbal geniuses, but we call them deficient in school in an attempt to eradicate a part of their identity. That being said, Thank y'all for rocking out with me. I'll talk to y'all soon. One.